Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everyone to episode six of True Blue True Crime. My name is Sean and with me as per usual, my excellent co-host Chloe. Hello, welcome everyone. I always get the urge to do the Robin Williams, Mrs. Doubtfire, hello, <laughs> right at the start, but um, look, I'm showing restraint. <laughs> Hi yeah, everyone. I, I was thinking we should have some sort of sign off, you know, I always get to the end and think... I should have like a like a Rove McManus say hi to your mum for me type thing. Stay classy. Yeah, yeah, something like that. So maybe we can we can flip that on its head and and do the hello. Oh, this is end. Doubtfire. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. okay, yeah, good one. We'll channel Robin Williams at the end. <laughs> we'll keep workshopping that. <laughs> Anyhow, how have you been? Yeah, good. I um have a giant pile of books at home to read and. This is now Book Corner, um, but I've got a really good true crime book that I've had for ages and I've finally gotten into it called I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Um, it was written by Michelle McNamara who actually died while writing the book and her husband is an actor, Patton Oswald, and he and a reporter, Billy Jensen, and another guy, Paul Haynes, worked together to finish the book. Um, And it's about the Golden State Killer who committed crimes for decades in America and was only just arrested this year. So um, if anyone wants a really good read, it's awesome. I'm ripping into it and usually I swing between books and can never commit to one. So I think that's a sign it's pretty good. Awesome. Yeah, there's an awesome podcast on it too, Criminology, that did their whole second season on it. Yes, not on the book, but on the case. And I think towards the last third of the thing, uh, he got apprehended, D'Angelo. So it was sort of like, you know, mid-season, they had to kind of like, well, you know, it was a spanner in the works yeah. and he's been arrested and, yeah, it was pretty crazy. So, And if you haven't heard the story, read the book and then listen to all the information on it because once you find out who he is, it's chilling. The book, it just, it changes the whole book. But to mm. read it not knowing who he is is so worth it. Yeah. Well, I haven't got any contributions to Book Corner this oh, week. Book Club's closed yeah. for the week then. <laughs> okay. Other than stuff I've been researching for this, which doesn't involve a book this week, but anyhow, we will get to that. Before we do, some quick notes about the show. True Blue True Crime is a weekly podcast covering Australian criminal cases. 
We release additional exclusive content to our Patreon supporters on a weekly basis. You can support the show on Patreon. The link will be in the show notes on whatever app you are listening on. Patreon is really easy. You can use your Facebook profile to sign up and support the show with a simple click, like buying something off eBay with your PayPal account. For $2 a month, you'll get exclusive Patreon content, access to Q&As, behind the scenes, blooper reels. We tease the next show in our Patreon episodes as well, and we'll give you 10% off in our merch store when that's up and running. Now, a few people have mentioned they're having trouble finding us within the Patreon site using the search function. Uh, We're working with Patreon on this at the moment, but for now, if you just Google True Blue True Crime Patreon, it will show up. We've also done a screenshot step-by-step document to send our new subscribers on how to add the Patreon feed to your existing podcast app once you've signed up. Some people just listen in on the Patreon app, that's fine, but if you take just a couple of minutes to add the link to your podcast app, it'll show up with the lovely True Blue True Crime logo in blue colour this time, and it'll just update like a regular podcast does when we release those episodes after that. So... That's the way to go, but we understand not everyone has the ability to support us on that front. That's totally cool. We appreciate you listening to our regular episodes. There are other ways you can spread the love and support the show. Tell your friends and work colleagues, join our Facebook group and follow us on Instagram, and you can share the podcast on social media too, or there might be some true crime groups or forums uh, who have members that might be interested. Yeah, some of our members have been doing that, so thank you so much. Thank you. And if you're up for it, please do give us a five-star rating and write a review on iTunes or whatever app you use. Um, We see them, it really helps us, and we'll read out the five-star reviews at the end of each episode. Before we get started today, we just wanted to advise any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners that this episode contains names, descriptions, and discussions of deceased persons which might cause sadness or distress, particularly to relatives of these people. So we encourage you to use your discretion and exercise self-care when listening to this episode. We're talking about an abduction case today, that of an eight-year-old girl. And these types of cases are always unsettling, so if you're not one for them, no hard feelings, but it mightn't end the way that you think this particular case. We're back in the 1960s in South Australia, at a time when the country was losing its innocence with respect to the unsupervised freedoms young children were afforded by their parents. It wasn't long since the Beaumont children had mysteriously disappeared from Glenelg Beach in the company of an unknown, tall, thin, blonde man. But while this tale shares many parallels, it's equally as different in how it unfolds. It has a number of twists and turns and an intriguing subplot involving the lost art of tracking. Sunday, 23rd of October, 1966. Mylor, South Australia. John Pfeiffer had seen his sister, Wendy, take their family dog, Bonnie, for a walk after lunch. Not that Bonnie wanted to walk, she would rather have slept the afternoon away alongside their family cat. Any excuse for Wendy to get outside and amongst the animals after the family's morning at church 
wearing their Sunday best. Wendy said she was going to visit the horses. Around 3pm, Bonnie came back up the driveway, a makeshift twine lead around her neck. But no Wendy. John considered taking his father's motorbike to go down the road and look for her, but it was too heavy. So he went on foot. Down the road away, he spotted tracks which looked to be from Wendy's little red plastic sandals, and they appeared to end in a circle as if she'd stopped to talk to someone. John looked up and down the road and out into the expansive paddocks in the Adelaide Hills, but his sister Wendy was nowhere to be seen. So we're in the small town of Mylor, around a half hour drive from the South Australian capital of Adelaide. The Pfeiffer family were having a typical Sunday morning. They'd enjoyed lamb's fry and egg breakfast together before getting ready to attend St Michael's Lutheran Church in Harndorf, which was about 10 minute drive away. The family lived on a dairy farm named Willow View Farm, which they owned and operated and an eight-year-old Wendy Jane Pfeiffer was the youngest of three children to Alan and Gladys Pfeiffer. They had two older boys, Trevor and John. So the family cleaned up after breakfast and got dressed in their Sunday best. Wendy in a red velvet dress and fluffy cream hat, and they went on their way in the family's blue-grey Hudson. Now, you said, Sean, the travel from Mylor to Handorf was about 10 minutes. That's drive time nowadays. Back in 1966, reports indicated it took over half an hour to get there, so that's probably indicative of the roads and vehicle capabilities of the time, I would say. The Fifers arrived at St Michael's and attended the service of Pastor Elmore Norman Zweck, and afterwards they left pretty much right away to head back home, stopping for a Sunday treat at Mrs Post's general store in Harndorf, where Alan Pfeiffer got his Sunday paper and bought the children some vanilla ice cream. The Pfeiffer family arrived back home at Willow View Farm in time for lunch, where they had a hearty Sunday meal of potatoes, turnips, onion and fried meats. After lunch, Wendy, who loved the outdoors much more than the dainty dress-wearing morning she'd had, was keen to head outside. So she'd changed, put on her new red plastic sandals, and eventually went for a stroll down the road with her dog Bonnie, leaving the 25-acre farm full of chooks, sheep and cows behind her. It was said she was going to visit some horses. As Wendy and Bonnie approached the intersection of Bradbury and Porteous Roads, a small white car pulled up alongside them on the same side they were walking. There was a man inside and he asked Wendy about fishing in the area, presumably asking for a good place to throw a line in. Now, apparently there wasn't much good fishing around these parts, but Wendy told the man about an area she knew of called Silver Lake. And just as she was speaking these words and giving the man directions, he grabbed her and dragged her into the car, put his hand over her mouth and put her over his lap. After this, he told her to keep quiet and then he stabbed Wendy with a knife three times in the upper chest. 
Now, obviously, in many abduction cases, details like this wouldn't be known at first. So clearly there's information about this that comes out as we go along, but we'll soon get to how we know what transpired at this time. Wendy's attacker then drove to the area near the intersections of Mount Bold and Gurr Roads, which was close to the Mount Bold Reservoir, and it was here he'd dumped Wendy's body. The Pfeiffer family knew she'd gone for a ride on her bicycle earlier. She'd returned and then was spotted by her brothers John and Trevor taking the dog for a walk. Around 3pm, the family noticed the dog Bonnie had returned home, but without Wendy, and her brother John went looking for her. He spotted tracks down the road which looked to be from Wendy's sandals and they appeared to end in a circle as if Wendy had stopped to talk to someone. Wendy's family obviously noticed that she hadn't returned after a period of time and they presumably contacted the authorities who initiated a full-scale search for her immediately. The Pfeiffer's Willowview Farm would be essentially a staging area that was reported to have been like a mini city of sorts flooded by fire engines, police vehicles, emergency services vehicles and media attendees alongside community volunteers. And Chloe, even the South Australian Premier at the time, a guy named Frank Walsh, attended and participated to some extent. Whether he went out on foot searching or not, I'm not sure, but he was there. South Australia Police and volunteers have been dispatched in the search for missing eight-year-old girl, Wendy Pfeiffer, who was last seen yesterday playing near the family's property in Milo, southwest of Adelaide. That's a short promotional clip from a documentary, which we'll talk more about later. It doesn't tell us anything that we don't already know at this point, but I just wanted to play it because of the way the broadcaster speaks. I think that really highlights the time period that we're in here. There's still that old lingering British accent in the Australian voice back then, and we don't hear that now. And the crackle of the wireless in the background as he speaks, it just gives us a vibe for the time. And I think a large reason for this huge search and rapid response is the timing of Wendy's abduction. If we go back to this time... It was only 10 months earlier that the infamous unsolved Australian case of the Beaumont children disappearance had occurred in South Australia as well. And as I said, this is a very famous case and a historic case uh, in Australia that remains unsolved to this day. For those not familiar with it, Jane Arner and Grant Beaumont, who were aged 9, 7 and 4 years, were three siblings who disappeared from Glenelg Beach near Adelaide, South Australia, on 26th of January 1966. It was a suspected abduction and murder. On the day of their disappearance, witnesses had seen the children in the company of a tall, blonde man aged in his mid-30s, but despite numerous searches, neither the children nor the suspect was located. The case really altered Australian lifestyles because parents felt they could no longer let their kids just head out into public unsupervised to play as they used to. This case has been covered in podcast form, the Beaumont case that is, for those of you who are interested. Casefile did an outstanding job covering this in their 100th episode and the True Crime Sisters have also covered it very thoroughly. So give those a listen, we might attempt it ourselves one day. 
But this wasn't the only infamous child abduction in South Australia in this time period. In 1973, Joanne Ratcliffe and Kirsty Gordon would go missing from an AFL game at the Adelaide Oval. This too remains unsolved and is suspected to be an abduction and murder. And this case is often linked to the Beaumont case through some of the persons of interest as the perpetrators. Now we're talking about it, I think we will dive into both of these cases, Chloe, in the near future. Not sure when or if we'll do it uh, on Patreon or what, we'll see. And not to digress too much, I just think it's interesting to point out these uh, cases because it paints a bit of a picture of the landscape at the time. Times were changing with these things and it just wasn't seemingly so safe anymore to let your kids wander and play unsupervised in public as they might have done in the past. But I think it's fair to say, in short, that these cases impacted the nation and as a result, probably led to a fairly rapid response in the case of Wendy's disappearance and also led the media to drawing many initial comparisons with this case and that of the Beaumont children. Searches continued through the night, spreading wider and wider from the family home and by the following morning they'd found no trace of Wendy. So I think it's fair to say that panic had set in for the Pfeiffer family at this point and the police were starting to prepare the family for the worst. And they state publicly in newspaper articles in the days after, as the searches continued, that they thought, based on the information they had, that it was improbable that Wendy was still alive. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Sunday night of Wendy's disappearance, a young 22-year-old man was watching television reports about the missing girl from Mylor, and he thought she looked a bit like the girl he'd seen that afternoon. Thinking about this overnight, the man, who was named Neville Dolling, couldn't sleep and he couldn't eat his breakfast when he woke the following morning, feeling sick with worry. Dolling took a tablet then drove to Harndorf to the residence of Pastor Elmore Zweck, who was the presiding minister at St Michael's Lutheran Church, which we mentioned earlier. Now Zweck was out and about at this early hour, and as he returned home, he saw a white Toyota Corona parked in his driveway. A Toyota Corona is a small car, and alongside it waiting for him, a young man. This young man asked if Zweck was a minister and told him he had a problem, a very big problem on his mind. They began to chat and the young man, who said his name was Neville Dolling, told the minister, I suffer from my head. My mind is sometimes blank. To which Zweck queried if this was related to the missing girl. Dolling said it was and the pastor followed up with, what's happened to her? Is she dead? Dolling replied, yes. How do you know? Zweck probed further. To which Dolling replied, she had stopped breathing. 
Zweck asked again if Dolling was sure she was dead, and Dolling confirmed yes, adding that he knew where she was. Zweck contacted the police in Mount Barker shortly thereafter, speaking with a sergeant who told him to keep Dolling talking as the police left for Zweck's house. So this was around 8.30am on the Monday morning after a night of searching and as we said, by this time the family and searchers were all fearing the worst and it had essentially been all but confirmed by Neville Dolling at this time. Around 10am, three homicide detectives would escort Dolling to a dirt track off Mount Bold Road and Dolling would lead them to the place where he'd dumped Wendy Pfeiffer's body. The police would find one of Wendy's jelly sandals in the brush nearby but after a search of the area where Dolling had indicated, they found no trace of Wendy's body. So this is where the police begin to piece together Wendy's movements and what had happened with the information Dolling provided about the attack, and they come to the conclusion that Wendy is most likely dead, but that either Dolling in his state after the attack hadn't recalled the location where he'd left her body, or that Wendy had come to for a short while and moved herself but by this point she would have likely expired, considering her wounds and the overnight elements of the harsh bush surrounding them. The police brought in a dog and it was unable to pick up any definable scent that led anywhere. The police charged Dolling with Wendy's murder, and this is where things take a really interesting turn in the story, and it's an aspect of this crime and subsequent search that wasn't widely covered by the media at the time, at least not emphasised enough in many people's eyes. So the police, believing Wendy Pfeiffer is dead, call in Aboriginal trackers Jimmy James and his colleague Daniel Mudu to locate Wendy's remains. The skills that these men had in tracking was unparalleled, and unfortunately, as I understand it, it's a dead art form these days. Jimmy James was taught tracking by his family in the Pajant Jajara mob, which was west of Ernabella in central Australia. He learnt the skills of observation, noticing what was missing and what certain signs meant. They could be weather-related or seasonal, a displaced pebble, a bent blade of grass. He could identify tracks that other people couldn't, and he could tell how long twigs had been broken and branches had been snapped for, and he could even distinguish different animal tracks from one another. He'd proven over time to be a talented and reliable tracker for the South Australian police, The first case he'd worked was tracking a rapist from Winky in 1948. Jimmy and his colleagues tracked the offender, who'd assaulted a local girl, and located him fishing on the banks of the Murray River. Jimmy said, The boy was a bit stupid, wore football boots after he did the bad thing to the girl. We found him easily fishing. He didn't catch any fish, but Jimmy caught him pretty quick. At the onset of the search, police were not hopeful at all about finding Wendy Pfeiffer's remains, let alone finding the girl alive. They had some idea by this point from Dolling of the injuries she'd sustained, but Jimmy James thought she might be alive, so he and Daniel Mudu started to track the young girl through the dense scrubland. But they were two days behind the girl, if she was still alive by this time, so even if by some miracle she had survived... She would have had two nights in the elements, which would have been difficult to survive with the cold temperatures overnight. The mood was grim, but Jimmy James could see tracks that others couldn't, and he and Moodoo quickly began cutting through the dense and thorny scrub following the path James could see. Alan and John Pfeiffer walked behind the trackers, along with emergency services and the police. 
James could tell from the tracks that the girl only had one shoe on, and he could also tell where she'd stopped on a log at one point. James also observed the stopping and starting of Wendy's tracks, indicating she was constantly checking to see if her abductor was coming back to get her. James and Moodoo moved quickly. James saw evidence that others couldn't see, including a change in the tracks, which indicated Wendy had changed her shoe from one foot to the other while walking, to ward off excessive damage to her other foot. They came to the Onkaparinga River next, a number of kilometres through the scrub, and James could tell she was going strong. He commented on how smart she was by going to the river, and then he and Moodoo discovered evidence of a makeshift camp she'd set up. Leaves had been broken up and made into a blanket of sorts to keep her warm overnight. James and Moodoo kept on the girls' trail relentlessly, forging through thick undergrowth and towering gums, somehow aware from the slightest of clues, such as disturbed dirt, a snapped twig, or the direction she'd taken. But not only the direction, but how she was coping at that moment. As they trailed along the river, James could tell after a while that Wendy had gotten tired and fallen over, which had to have dampened the spirits at the time, with the police already thinking Wendy had likely perished. Her father and brother must have been preparing themselves for the worst. But James and Moodoo continued on, faster, trying to gain ground on the tough little girl. But they could tell she was tired now, and hurt badly. James noticed her steps had become shorter, and she'd curled up very tight under an old hut she'd stumbled upon, perhaps scared of the wild nighttime noises, James thought. In under two hours... James and Moodoo had led the group of searchers through 20 kilometres of dense bushland, and finally, they came to a grassy area which had fresher tracks. They knew at this point they were close, but they didn't know how close, and there was every chance the little girl had succumbed to either her wounds or the elements by this time. They continued combing through the bush, following the fresher tracks in the grass, when some of the searchers heard what they thought were lambs or sheep. But Jimmy James knew better. He and Daniel Moodoo moved further down the river to a shallow spot on the water and through the bush, under a tree, he saw the body of Wendy Pfeiffer. up and tell Alan and John, who were the first ones to run over to the young girl, that she was alive. The noises searchers heard and thought were lambs was actually Wendy responding. She waved to a call from her father, replying, here I am. Wendy was obviously in bad shape, so she was given medical attention, but the strength she displayed in this ordeal was not lost on anyone. James and Moody stood nearby, a few metres from Wendy. Exhausted but happy, they wiped their brows with a handkerchief and sought refuge under a nearby tree, where Jimmy James thanked God and his Dreamtime spirits for allowing them to find the young girl in enough time to save her life. James and Moodoo returned to their home at the Gerard Mission before news of Wendy Pfeiffer being found alive had even hit the mainstream press. And it was around this time, after her recovery and being reunited with her family, 
We heard the full story from Wendy Pfeiffer's point of view. Wendy was suffering from exposure and pneumonia after her ordeal, but she began to paint a clear picture of what had happened to her that Sunday afternoon and beyond. As she walked along the road with her dog Bonnie, a man, who we now know to be Neville Doling, pulled up alongside her, asked about fishing in the area, and in her words, snapped her into the car. She said she remembered his hand was sweaty and dirty, and he had a young voice. Not a slow, usual country voice, but almost anxious sounding. Then she felt the blood, and it felt like she'd been punched three times, and Dolling told her to keep quiet. The next thing she remembered was waking up and walking down the dirt track late Sunday. She woke up on a bunch of leaves and there was no one around, and it was hard to move. Her shirt was stuck to her skin and it smelled like metal. She crawled at first, then got up and walked, but realised she only had one shoe. She lost one at some point. She walked for a long time after this, hours, and all the while kept holding her underwear to her chest to stem the bleeding. Her chest hurt a lot, but she was determined to find the river, which might lead her back home. Wendy commented that she was more worried about if her dog had managed to get home and that she thought she might get in trouble for not completing her chores, as opposed to her own welfare at the time. During her time in the bush, she encountered three lizards and two snakes, and we have some dangerous ones here in Australia, mostly dangerous, but Wendy commented that they were pretty and she didn't get scared and just avoided them. And she had indeed, as Jimmy James observed, swapped over her shoe to the other foot from time to time. Both of her feet now, though, were pretty beaten up from the thorns and the harsh undergrowth. She confirmed the leaves she'd use as a blanket and the hut she'd crawled up in at night, and the nighttime noises had indeed spooked her, as Jimmy James ascertained from how tight she'd huddled up. Incredible the insight into the human mind that James was able to understand just from mere observation of tracks and clues left behind. Wendy said when she got to the river, she was too sore in the chest to bend down and drink, so instead she used her sandal as a cup to drink out of. She also washed her underwear and got the blood off, before finding a spot further down the stream to cross. She got very wet and cold from doing this, she said, and she was getting very tired by this point. At one point she ate some grass, having searched for blackberries, but had no luck because it was the wrong time of year. She was dehydrated and exhausted by the time the trackers found her, and as we said, Dolling had stabbed her three times, and one of the wounds finished less than half an inch from her heart. Now, it was hypothesised that Wendy's abductor knew her, but this didn't turn out to be the case. Neville Dolling, who was now facing an attempted murder charge, was not known to her or the Pfeiffer family at all. He attended the other Lutheran church in Harndorf, it turned out. St. Paul's. As we said, he was a farmhand, and despite his admission and taking the police to the site, he pled not guilty at trial for the attempted murder of Wendy Pfeiffer. In March 1967, Doling was found guilty of the crime and sentenced to 12 years jail. So I'm not sure what his defence was exactly, but it was said in the research that he had a psychotic episode or brain snap, if you like. He wasn't certified insane or mentally ill, and the judge held him fully responsible for his actions on that Sunday afternoon. It was said that Doling was of an immature mind and had been a pain in his parents' arse from a young age. I'm paraphrasing, but you get the gist. There was no evidence or indication of sexual assault or rape, 
which aligns with the doctor's reports of both Pfeiffer and Dolling. But the judge, a Justice Chamberlain, said Dolling's motive appeared to have some sexual basis. And I think this was because Wendy's underwear had been found beside her. But to me, that was odd because Wendy had used her underwear to stop her bleeding as she walked through the bush. So I'm not really sure how the judge married that up with Dolling's motive. Anyhow, Dolling seemingly went on to live a normal life after his time in jail. He had kids and grandkids, and in 2018, he died from terminal prostate cancer. He was in his late 70s by this point. He spent the last few years of his life raising awareness for prostate cancer and fundraising for cancer research. I stumbled across a picture of him in a Flinders Foundation newsletter online, but really there's not much more to add about Neville Dolling really, and I guess we'll never know why he did what he did that day some 50 years ago now. Wendy Pfeiffer is 61 now, and she doesn't really talk about these events with anyone. She survived, and she's gone on to define her life in other ways. She's had three children, and she lives in an out-of-Melbourne suburb. She's a strong ethical vegan, an artist, and she puts her survival down to two things. One, her determination and hating of anything that gets in the way. So I'm guessing that's how her eight-year-old self viewed this harrowing ordeal in the bush, just an obstacle to overcome. And secondly, the heroic and brilliant actions of Jimmy James and Daniel Moodoo in finding her. Without Jimmy James, Wendy believes she probably wouldn't have survived another night in the wilderness with the wounds she had suffered. And this is corroborated by doctors' reports thereafter too, which attested to the seriousness of the wounds her attacker had inflicted. And from the research on this case, Chloe, and probably a reason this case is not well known at all, is because of Wendy's reluctance to speak about it in the media. And I can understand that. Having to relive something like this over again, when you've done your part, you survived, and gone on to carve your own path in life, is probably the last thing anyone would want to do. In 2018, Wendy agreed to do a final exclusive interview with Roslyn Odes, and these were used in the essay published by SBS, which supported their interactive documentary called Missing, which focused on Wendy's survival and Jimmy's tracking. The essay, which was written by Kylie Bolton and researched by Deborah Schultz, was a great source of information for us in crafting this episode, along with the Missing documentary and the book Lost and Found on the life of Jimmy James, written by Robert Holmes, alongside a few archived newspaper articles from the time. To our understanding, in Wendy's view, the media reports at the time were not particularly accurate with their depictions of the events, so she agreed to do this final interview to set the story straight, and this was really to highlight Jimmy James and Daniel Moodoo's involvement in her rescue. So we can only hope that this episode we've put together in the podcast format does the same and aligns with Wendy's own wishes on how these events should be portrayed, and I hope that we've accomplished that in a respectful way to all involved. Wendy Pfeiffer is married and has a different last name now, which we won't say in respecting her privacy. Jimmy James tracked close to 100 missing people and escaped prisoners in his 40-year career working for the South Australian police. He helped solve famous cases including the Sundown murders in 1957, the Pine Valley murders in 1958, and he even tracked down child-killing prison escapee James George Smith in 1982. 
James was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia in 1982, but it was a gold medal presented to him by the Pfeiffer family for rescuing their daughter Wendy that James considered his most prized possession. James and Wendy remained in touch throughout the years since her rescue until Jimmy's passing in 1991, at which time he was still wearing the medal he received for finding Wendy. So that's that story. Um, and what a story. I mean, I love the strength and the determination and the smarts shown from everyone involved. I think Wendy showed such courage at such a young age. I can't even comprehend staying that composed in a situation like that. The descriptions of what she thought when she saw the animals really got me as well for some reason. Her saying that they were beautiful. I think it's a pretty remarkable person to see beauty while you're walking through the bush injured, trying to find your way home after an ordeal like that. And Jimmy James, I think you have a lot more to say about him, Sean, but what a hero. The knowledge he had and the details he noticed seemed like magic. But as you said earlier, it was a true art form. Yeah, absolutely. Jimmy James is undoubtedly a true Australian hero. And I personally was absolutely enthralled with this man's abilities and accomplishments when researching this case. I'd never heard of him. And for the life of me, I I can't understand why he's not a household name. So we were planning on taking a deep dive into Jimmy James on our next Patreon episode, but honestly, it just feels like a story that everyone should know, that of, of Jimmy. So we're going to cover that next week in our main episode. But this case was a really huge one at the time, Chloe, and it hasn't been really covered in podcast form to our knowledge. And as we mentioned earlier, this was a time in our nation post the Beaumont children disappearance where the landscape really changed for families. It just wasn't a world anymore where you could go to the beach and let the kids sort of uh, run around town unsupervised. There were animals, monsters out there, and they were waiting to abduct them and, and hurt them. So in the scope of this time period, this case too was very important in this shifting landscape. So we wanted to tell it through the different filters of the people who experienced it, namely Jimmy James and Wendy Pfeiffer themselves, but also how it affected the Pfeiffer family and the broader public at the time. But there's absolutely no denying the moxie of this eight-year-old girl and her sheer will to survive out there in that harsh bush for three days and two nights, Chloe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, What a story. Mm. Um, So we'll move on to happy thoughts. We don't, even though this was a terrible thing for Wendy and her family to live through, I don't feel as down as um, other weeks that we've done because at least there was a somewhat happy outcome from this. But Yes, that's a ch- nice change for yeah. pace for us. <laughs> I hope everyone enjoyed that. Mm. Uh, so you can go first this week. What is your happy thought? My happy thought is I got a new job recently. Yay. So, yeah, pretty excited to begin that. It'll be in a couple of weeks' time from now. Great. Um, mine is super trivial but – the new series of Queer Eye has been released on Netflix and it is the happiest, most pure show I have ever watched and I'm so excited. I've made my husband sit through a couple of episodes. Um, He's not that into it for some reason but I'm hanging out for the weekend to have some time to watch some more. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) That sounds great, Chloe. (laughs) 
<laughs> so moving on to reviews. <laughs> oh, and speaking of awesome shows, I do, and you reminded me when you mentioned um, Michelle McNamara's book earlier. And we were talking about it before we came on, The Murder Squad, the new... Yes, Paul Holes. And uh, Billy Jensen. So I think uh, I've listened to the preview of that like 10 times. (laughs) Cannot wait for that to come out. (laughs) Yeah, and some people might not be surprised that part of my true crime love involves my favourite murder and they got me onto both of those. So um, podcast review, book corner, (laughs) Netflix recommendations. (laughs) Look at us go. (laughs) We got it all. (laughs) Um, So we have two new reviews this week. Um, The first one is from Loz Sned uh, and it's called Well Delivered. The caption reads, so well read. I love the detail and delivery of the stories. I look forward to each episode. Thank you so much. The next review is from Lenny B18 and it's called Brilliant. And the caption reads, I listened to around six true crime podcasts and the Leonard Fraser episode, episode three, was one of the best I have heard. So brilliantly delivered and it was riveting from start to finish. Keep up the great work, guys. Um, Both fantastic reviews. Thank you so much for taking the time to do that. Thank you. Very kind. And last but not least, um, we'll go through the emails and the socials. So you can email us with suggestions, questions or feedback at truebluecrime at gmail.com. Our Facebook group is called True Blue True Crime Podcast and you can find us on Instagram on True Blue Crime. So that's it from us this week. I hope everyone enjoyed it and we're going to jump on to our Patreon episode now and record some extra content. Yeah, we're going to be talking about Robert Black Farmer who was uh, the piece of shit going toe-to-toe with Bill L. Scaff in the uh, jail yard from our episode last week. So if you want to hear more of that, jump on across to Patreon. But otherwise, over and out from us, we will see you guys next week on True Blue, True Crime. Goodbye. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.